Well, our sermon text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you have a Bible there and you want to follow along, I'll invite you, if you're able to do so, to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. Give ear to God's Word. It says, First of all, then, uh, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth and not I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, our study through First Timothy has had a few, uh, not interruptions so-called, but some, some breaks here and there. And so once in a while I think it's time, timely and helpful for us to, to be reminded of what First Timothy is about in general before we go into our particular text. And there is a, a purpose statement, so, so to speak, Right around the middle of the book in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 15, where Paul tells Timothy he was writing this letter to him in case he was delayed in coming back to him. He was writing this letter to him so that he might, quote, know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So he wanted Timothy to know while he was away how to conduct himself and how the church should be conducted uh, because the church is the household of God, the church of the living God, and the pillar and buttress of the truth. We looked through chapter 1 uh, in previous uh, Sundays, previous weeks, and in that first chapter we saw that Paul's concern mainly in that chapter was that, uh, that the church be maintained as a pillar and buttress of the truth. Much of what he said in chapter 1 had to do with defending the faith against false teaching that from time to time creeps into the church, uh, that's what he tells Timothy to do, to, to defend the faith, so to speak, and to fight against false teaching. He even tells him in verse 3 to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Timothy is, is, was told by Paul to be kind of bold, the way we would look at it, in, in defending the faith. He was to go to those directly who were teaching false doctrine and rebuke them and charge them to do it no longer. Paul even reminds Timothy of his own example of doing the same kind of thing, his own dealings with false teaching in the church, false teachers in the church, and he does something that we don't often do in our day. He names names. He tells Timothy, you remember this, basically. Remember these two individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and he tells them how uh, strictly he had dealt with them, that he tells them he had handed them over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. It's a pretty pretty uh, serious thing to do. That's chapter 1, and he'll deal with those same things later on in this letter as well. But in chapter 2, Paul kind of changes gears a little bit. He goes from defending the faith against false teaching uh, and turns our attention to a different aspect in the life of the church, and that is public worship. Much of what he says in the following chapter and even beyond chapter 2 has to deal in some way with how the church was to conduct ourselves in, in public worship. And the text that we're looking at this morning, in this text, Paul impresses upon Timothy 
and upon us in the church today, the vital importance of prayer, even corporate prayer in public worship. He's not just telling Timothy, hey, make sure you pray. He's saying as a church, this is how important prayer together, corporate prayer in the midst of worship on the Lord's Day is. And so the first thing I'd like to look at in verse 1, notice it's, a, it's one of those phrases you kind of read, and very often you, you might just kind of gloss over it in your thinking about the text. But in verse 1 he says, first of all, first of all, he says then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So I have to ask this morning, do we normally think of prayer in public worship on the Lord's Day as being vitally essential to the church's worship? If, if someone were to ask you, maybe an unsaved neighbor or, or friend were to say, you know, what, what do you guys do in church? Why do you go every Sunday? What is it that you do? What makes, what is essential to public worship? Would prayer be the first thing that would come to your mind? In many cases, I don't, I don't think, in, in a lot of places, I don't think it is. You know, um, I think many many places I've been to many churches, and maybe you have too, where public prayer is is if anything it's de-emphasized. It's it's not something that uh, tends to attract an audience, so to speak. We're not trying to attract an audience. We're trying to worship God, and God uses His means of grace to sanctify us and and to save the lost, to convert the lost. But prayer is an essential aspect of public worship of God's people. It always has been and always must be. In his book on pastoral ministry, it's one of my favorite books, Charles Spurgeon's book, Lectures to My Student. It's kind of a what I would think of as a brief manual on pastoral ministry. In that book, uh, he, he says something about pastoral prayer, which I find remarkable. He says this, one of my favorite quotes. He says, I will sooner yield up the sermon than the prayer. And if you know Charles Spurgeon was known for, he was known as the Prince of Preachers. I don't think he probably accepted that title. No one would. Uh, but uh, the Prince of Preachers, and when he thought of public prayer in the pulpit, com- compared even to preaching, he says, I will sooner yield up the sermon than the prayer. And then he says, Thus much I have said to impress upon you that you must highly esteem public prayer. He's talking to ministry students. That you must highly esteem public prayer and seek of the Lord for the gifts and grace is necessary to its right discharge. That's how important Spurgeon, no less, thought of public prayer in the church. Do you and I esteem public prayer in the worship service that highly? Or is it something to be kind of hurried through to get on with the the main thing? Do we think of singing as the main thing or the sermon or some such thing? We've mentioned a number of times in recent Sundays the second chapter of Acts. Pentecost Sunday was uh, just a couple weeks ago or so, and I, I think it seems fitting. It seems like this chapter keeps coming up again and again. Well, do you remember Acts 2.42? I think I even read it last Sunday. Acts 2.42 there, Luke tells us about the priorities of the early church. Many of them, some 3,000 souls, had just been converted to Christ when they heard Peter's sermon on Pentecost Sunday, that first Pentecost day. And this is what Acts 2.42 says of this early church, many of whom were brand new converts. It says... And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. That's a description of what we call the ordinary, the outward and ordinary means of grace. The apostles' teaching is the teaching of the scriptures, the fellowship of the church, the breaking of the bread, which is a 
It's a way of referring to the Lord's table. And then the last thing, notice he doesn't just say, this is how we would have read it, written it. He doesn't just say, and to prayer. Although that's certainly included. He says, and the prayers. The definite article, the, there in front of it, is an indication that this is corporate prayer he's talking about. The church fellowshipping together around the word of God, the word, the teachings of the apostles, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They prayed together. And it says they devoted themselves to it. And it's talking about public worship. They were devoted to praying together as a church. What does uh, our Lord himself say? And he quotes Isaiah when he says it. Uh, My house is to be called a house of prayer for all the nations. What's Isaiah there? Now, what does that mean? That means one of the things that should characterize a church of Jesus Christ is prayer. Prayer together, especially even in public worship. Corporate prayer, especially prayer in the context of public worship on the Lord's Day, should be a priority for all believers. We should devote ourselves to it. It's a means of grace which God often uses and has chosen to use to work in the lives of his people. Now, what kinds of prayers should be included? He kind of tells us in the text, doesn't he? He says, first of all, then, verse 1, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people or all men. Now, we probably shouldn't try to make too strong of a distinction between what those various words for prayer mean or don't mean. In fact, uh, John Calvin, no less, candidly confesses this. He says, I admit that I do not completely understand the difference between three of the four kinds of prayer Paul mentions. Many commentators that I've read go to some extent, some lengths, to try to say, this is exactly this one and this is exactly that. I don't think that's the point at all. I think, if anything, it's best for us to understand this, is Paul's basically saying, pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Intercessions, prayers and supplications of many kinds along with thanksgivings. But I think even that serves to underscore the the importance of prayer in public worship, that Paul kind of adds words one on top of the other, different titles for prayer. Paul, Paul obviously wants us to pray as a church. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And that brings us to the second thing in our text. The second thing I think that jumps off the page at us is not just the, the priority of prayer, but the purview of prayer in public worship, the purview or the scope who or what we are to pray for. Paul goes on to say that we're to pray for all men. The King James puts it all men uh, or all people, as the ESV says. Now, that certainly includes those within the church, but I can't help but think that his main thinking is those outside the church. That doesn't mean we don't pray for each other. We obviously do, but I think it means we're not to to constrict the scope of our prayers to just the people in the room. We are to pray for those who are outside the church as well, especially, I think, unbelievers as well. Now, Paul says, when he says all men, now, can you literally pray for all men? You don't even know all men. We don't know all people. And I think we can't take this too literally. I think it's possible for us to pray, uh, but not possible to pray for every human being. But what it does tell us is that we are to pray for all kinds of people. I think that's what Paul means when he says all We are to pray for all kinds of people. There's basically no one whom we should feel constrained to omit from our prayers on the Lord's Day. We should pray for all kinds of people. There's no one for whom we should not pray. There's no kind of person for whom we should not pray. 
And he goes on to say that all men that we are to pray for even includes praying, what does he say, for kings and all who are in high positions. It's a pretty broad scope of, of people that we are to pray for in public worship. We are to pray even especially for kings and all who are in high authority. And I couldn't help but thinking when I was reading this and preparing for this morning that you know, so much for keeping politics out of the pulpit. Paul says pray for kings. Not pretend they don't exist. Not don't say anything that could possibly be related to what they do or their position as rulers. He says pray for them. And he gets really specific about how and what to pray for for them. We should make it a regular habit or practice to pray for our leaders, the leaders of our local and state and federal levels of our government. And most of those prayers should not be of the imprecatory variety. It should not just be praying for God to judge the wicked, although that sometimes does apply. We should pray for our law enforcement officers and first responders of every kind. If there was ever a time to pray for all these kinds of people, it's now. We should have no no end of things we could pray for for them, especially right now. We should seek their good. We should pray for their well-being. We should pray for wisdom and grace from God to do their jobs well. And we should pray, most importantly, for their conversion and their salvation. There are many in our government, and we don't pretend to know who is and isn't, although sometimes it seems more obvious than others. But there are many in our government that God has placed there. Sometimes God places them there as a chastisement for us, for our sins. But God has placed them there, and we should pray for their conversion. And we should believe that God will save some. God, God saves those kinds of people, too. God saves all kinds. We should pray for their salvation, their conversion. There's nothing wrong with peaceful protest for a just cause. But I think as believers, we should certainly pray far more than we protest. If you're going to protest, fine, but pray as well. To protest, when you protest, what, what might happen? You might, you might get something done. You might get the attention of those who were in earthly authority. But when you pray, you, you come to the, to the throne of grace boldly. And you petition the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. You'll accomplish far more by prayer than you ever will by earthly protest. So let us pray for all kinds of people and let us be devoted to doing so, not just privately, although we should do that as well, but in public worship, trusting that God, as he says in our text in verse 3, he says, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And what does that imply? That he'll answer that kind of prayer God is pleased by. You know, it's important the Bible tells us to pray according to the will of God. To pray according to God's will, we know he hears us. And if we know he hears us, we know that we have received the things of which we have asked. He tells us right here, you want to know something God is pleased to answer? And is pleased by when we pray? That we pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Well, that brings us to the third and final thing that we should look at in our text that's not just the, the uh, priority and purview of our public prayers, but also the purpose of that prayer. What exactly are we to pray for, for kings and all, all who are in authority and high position? Uh, the purpose of that prayer in public worship is that, what does he say in verse 2? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Verse 2. What's he saying? In other words, we are to pray that we might, as the church, be able to go about our business in serving the Lord Jesus Christ without being disturbed or persecuted. That's really, that's really the goal. It's not that we might be 
especially favored by the government or receive benefits so-called from the government for it, but that we just might be allowed to serve the Lord and worship him in quietness and dignity and in peace. The prophet Jeremiah says something similar in Jeremiah 29.7. He writes this, he says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, you might not know the context of Jeremiah's prophecy. It's a rather long book in the Old Testament and the major prophets. But the context was the Babylonian captivity. Not exactly a pleasant circumstance. And what does he say in that very verse in in Jeremiah 29.7? He says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. They They were taken from their home. They were taken from the land of Judah, taken into captivity for a number of years, you know, basically taken captive, forced to live somewhere else in a foreign land where, where false gods were worshipped and all kinds of immorality and things. It was totally unpleasant, totally hard. It was a chastisement from God. He had sent them there, and what does he tell them? What should they do? Should they sit there and grumble and, and, and plot against the Babylonians? Was that, what, was that the right response in their particular case? No, because God had sent them there. It was a chastisement for their wickedness and unbelief. But he says, seek the welfare of that place. Seek its welfare. Not only that, he tells them, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray for them. Of all the people they could pray for, the Babylonians were probably not the first to come to their minds, at least not praying for their welfare. And then what does he add? For in its welfare you will find your welfare. When it goes well for them, it will go better for you. We may not always like the direction of our government or the character of some of those who have been elected to high office, but so far we really can't compare ourselves or our situation to that of the children of Judah living in Babylon. It may feel like we're getting close, but we're not in Babylon yet. And if they, if they can be told to pray for Babylon, we can be told to pray for our own leaders. And in finding uh, their welfare, we find our own. You know, there's a saying, a rising tide lifts all boats. If you pray for their, their welfare, it will affect us as well. If it was good for the Israelites uh, to pray and to seek the prosperity of the place they were at, how much more is that the case for us? Now, are not so, in some sense, are you and I exiles? You may not feel like we're in exile. Are, are, are we exiles in a foreign land? In some ways, we are. Is this world our home? No, not our ultimate home. In fact, the Apostle Peter writes this, 1 Peter 2, verses 11 to 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's what he calls God's people. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He tells the believers there that in some sense they were sojourners and exiles. That's us. That's you if you're a Christian living anywhere in this world. You live in the best place on this earth. You are still a sojourner and an exile because you're not home yet. Our home is with the Lord, not in this world. Even the new heavens and new earth isn't yet. That is our ultimate home. Well, lastly, in some ways, we have uh, not entirely been permitted by our government 
to go about our business and worship. We know that in recent months we haven't been permitted to meet in person without trouble. And, and so what do we pray for? That we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So what Paul has in mind here is not just believers as individuals, but as a church. You know, you might say, many have said, well, the government hasn't made you do anything differently because they say, well, you can still worship Jesus in your heart. That's all true. But not being able to gather, that was something that, just a small taste of what it feels like to be obstructed by by something. And so we should pray for that. And what should we do? Should we petition the government? Nothing wrong with that. I myself did that uh, in this past, uh, this pandemic. Should we protest peacefully? Nothing wrong with protesting peacefully. But we should certainly pray. In fact, prayer, I think, should be our primary response. My first response sometimes is complaining. Rather than praying, we should pray more than that. And what if we live under a government uh, of wicked rulers who despise the church and the gospel of Christ? That does seem to be the case in many places, even in our country these days. It seems more and more, you know, Rob mentioned Psalm 2. More and more, it seems like there's a lot of hostility, open hostility to the gospel. I saw a video, uh, a lot of videos, you probably ignore this this time of, of uh, life, but a video just this weekend of a street preacher, preacher up in Seattle being attacked by the mob, the new, the new rule, the new law up there. Uh, they physically attacked him, dragged him to the ground, tried to take his equipment from him. All he was doing was preaching the gospel, but they weren't going to have it. They were, they were hating God. Well, this is what Calvin writes again. He says, if the question is raised whether we ought to pray for kings from whom we do not receive these advantages, you know, being allowed to worship God in peace and quiet, if the question is raised whether we ought to pray for kings from whom we do not receive these advantages, my answer is that we ought to pray that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they may begin to grant us these blessings that they have till now failed to provide. Uh, thus, we should not only pray for those who are already worthy, and here it is, but we should ask God to make wicked rulers good. We should ask God to make wicked rulers good. In other words, we should pray that the Holy Spirit might change their hearts and minds and their course of action, and we should pray for their conversion. I think Calvin is spot on there with that, with that comment. Well, that leads us, I think, to the other purpose or aim of public worship and prayer in public worship. What else does Paul say the aim of such prayer is to be? What is, what is the purpose for us asking God uh, that he would enable by his grace and kindness that he would change the hearts of kings and rulers that we might live a peaceful and quiet life and serving the Lord. Uh, I think Paul says when he, in verse 4, the ultimate reason for such prayer is that God desires or wills, what is he saying? All men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so this praying isn't some kind of selfish prayer just for our own comfort, but for the salvation of sinners and the glory of God. We pray that the church might be allowed to, to serve God and to mind our own business in, in dignity and peacefulness and, and quiet. Uh, why? Not just so that we can have peace and quiet, which we all like, but so that, so that the gospel might be unhindered and that many might come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Now you might say, if it's God's will that all men might be saved, won't they just be saved anyway? It says it right. I mean, he says it. God's will, God wills that all men might be saved. So what does that mean? And does Paul actually mean that all people are going to be saved? Well, first you have to keep in mind that Paul uses that phrase, all people or all men, in the same sense in verse 4 as he does in verse 1. 
The meaning is clearly all kinds of men, not all, each and every individual. Because he says all men, and then he says for kings and all who are in high positions. All kinds of men, from the lowest to the highest. The Bible does not teach universalism. Why else would Paul go to such lengths to remind Timothy that all roads don't lead to heaven? Why else would Paul in chapter 1 tell Timothy to be on his guard against false teaching? if it didn't really matter at the end of the day. Why does Paul say later in this text, he reminds Timothy of the fact that we we do not serve a God who just saves everyone indiscriminately. He says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Everything about this text says differently. It doesn't say anything about... Universalism, it says the opposite. There's one God, not many. And there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And what did he do? He gave himself as a ransom for all. He died to save his people. What did Jesus himself say in John fourteen six? He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say he was a way or a truth or a life, one among many. He says the, the only one. And why pray if it's God's will that all men, all kinds of men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? Sometimes we say, well, if God's just going to save who he's going to save, which that is, that part is true, well, then why pray if God's going to do it anyway? Well, first off, the first reason is, and maybe it's the most obvious one, because God commands us to pray. He doesn't say if you feel like it. He doesn't leave it as an option. He says to pray. He commands it in his word. That should be an end to any argument or objection. That should be good enough for us that God tells us to do it. J.I. Packer has a, a little book. I highly commend it to you. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And he tries to, to make a case for us, a simple case, I think, of how those two things go together. And he says this, simply enough. He says, God did not teach us the reality of his rule in order to give us an excuse for neglecting his orders. If you really believe God is sovereign, then do what he says. We don't get to say, Lord, I know you're sovereign over all things, so I'm just going to disregard what you tell me to do. Do you believe God's sovereign and in charge or not? And if you do, which he is, we don't neglect his orders and use his own, his own attributes against him for it. We don't say, well, God, you're sovereign, so I don't have to. No, he's sovereign, so we do have to, and we do need to do what he says. God also commands us to evangelize the lost, to take the gospel of his son to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of all nations, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. That's a command, it's a commission, it's not optional. He tells us to do it, just like he tells us to pray for all men. The Westminster Confession of Faith has a chapter on the decrees of God. I commend it to you, it's chapter 3, and there's one paragraph there in that chapter, it says this. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That's, that means everything. He, he has or unchangeably and freely ordained whatsoever comes to pass, yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, we can't blame God for our sins, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. In other words, God uses means. He ordains the ends as well as the means to those ends. 
He ordains, foreordains whatsoever comes to pass in time. But he is not the author of sin. We are responsible for our own sins. He doesn't do violence to the will of the creature. None of us, when we sin, can say, I wasn't going to sin, but God made me do it, so it's God's fault. No, God God uses secondary causes like you and like me and like your circumstances. And he uses all those things for the accomplishment of his of his purposes. He uses second causes. God is in control of everything that comes to pass in time. What does Jesus say in Matthew 10? Not even a bird, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father in heaven. That's a pretty little thing, isn't it? What's, why is he saying it? Because if he's in charge of the little things, like the hairs of your head and sparrows hitting the ground, he can handle the big things too. And we can trust that he knows what he's doing. Let's remember that God and his sovereignty ordains again, not just the ends, such as the salvation of sinners through faith in Christ, but also the means to those ends. Things like prayer and the preaching of the gospel. That's what God has chosen and ordained to do to accomplish his purposes that he has ordained. God may use secondary causes such as circumstances, which he has ordained, such as our prayers, such as the preaching of the gospel, but God is the primary cause of all those things and brings them to come to pass. Frankly, if God were not sovereign over all things, even the salvation of sinners, I don't think I would ever want to pray. I would be less motivated to pray, not more, because I wouldn't know that God is in control. I certainly would not have any confidence in preaching the gospel of Christ if God were not sovereignly in control of all things, even the salvation of sinners. Because God is sovereign and because he will save the lost whom he has chosen from before the foundation of the world, you and I can preach and pray and work for his glory and trust that he is well pleased to use even us in the accomplishment of his purposes, even the salvation of sinners. And what's, what's the point of all this? God gets the glory for the salvation of sinners, the glory that's due unto him alone. And because of that, we should pray together, even in the service, and pray for kings and those in authority that we might be allowed to go about our business making Christ known by preaching his gospel that sinners might be saved because we know that pleases God. He's pleased to hear and answer those kinds of prayers. Amen. Let's.